And if you look at Susa on Google Map, you'll see the King's Gate. You'll see the Apadana, which is the meeting hall. You'll see the three gardens. You'll see the throne room. And there was one archaeologist that actually stood in the King's Gate where Mordecai stood. He actually walked from the woman's quarters to the throne room, and he's been in the Apadama. Now, the Apadama had 72 columns in it. It was huge, and the ceiling was 65 feet tall, so it was gigantic. So I want to get that out because I love it when archaeology confirms everything that we read in Scripture. So 65 feet, it's huge. Haman sought and received a royal edict from King Ahasuerus to exterminate all the Jews. Haman cast lots, Purim. Pur is, is uh, Persian for lot. And guess, the rabbis say that he cast lots on the 13th of Nisan, which is interesting. And the lots fell on the 13th day of the last month of the month of Adar. Haman's treachery was revealed before that day by Queen Esther. And he was hung on the gallows he had erected for Mordecai. The gallows were 50 cubits in height, or about 75 feet. Now, hanging is a more sanitized way of describing the common method of execution in the Persian Empire. And I don't want to go into that. This is G-rated, right? <laughs> King, ah, 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 King Ahasuerus issued a second edict that the Jewish people could defend themselves against the planned pogrom. Why a second edict? Once a royal edict has been issued and sealed by the king, it cannot be rescinded. It has to go forward. So they had to, he'd do a second one. On the day of the attack, those killed in Shushan were 500 men plus the 10 sons of Haman and many more thousands throughout the empire. In Esther... Chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, Mordechai, the son of Yair, the son of Shimi, the son of Kish, a Benjamite and cousin of Esther, is introduced. Then in Esther, chapter 3, verse 1, we are told that King Ahasuerus began to single out this man called Haman, the son of Hamdata, the Agagi, which is a descendant of King Agag, the Amalekite. Now, there appears to be a connection between the descendants of Haman and the descendants of Mordechai. Far back in scriptures, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 21, it says, Saul, son of Kish, tribe of Benjamin, is anointed king of Israel by Samuel. It appears that Mordechai's ancestral line and King Saul's originate with the same ancestor, Kish. Now in 1 Samuel chapter 15, King Saul is commanded by Jehovah, to go to war and exterminate the Amalekites, every man, woman, child, and all their animals, so that nothing remains. King Saul did what Jehovah commanded him, but he did not do all of what he was commanded. He did not kill King Agog, and he kept some of the best animals for himself. Kind of a greedy little soul he was. King Saul's fate was sealed because he disobeyed Jehovah. There are some sages that teach because King Saul, a Benjamite, did not kill King Agog and Amalekite, as commanded by Jehovah, that these two people would meet again sometime in the future. And sure enough, they did.
After the Jews were allowed to defend themselves against the attackers on the 13th day of Adar, they were victorious throughout the kingdom. King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther what her petition for her people would be. He would grant whatever it was. In Esther chapter 9, verse 12 through 14, And the king said to Esther the queen, The Jews have slain and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the capital, and the ten sons of Haman. Whatever your petition, it shall be granted you, and whatever you request further, it shall be done. Esther said, If it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews that are in Shushan to do tomorrow, also according to this day's decree. Let the Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. Queen Esther's request was odd because the ten sons of Haman were already dead, killed in battle. Why hang them? The ancient sages and the rabbis teach that Esther's request was for a future time, and so she was not addressing her husband, the king, but she was addressing the king of kings. So let's look at the word tomorrow in Esther's request. The rabbis comment, there is a tomorrow that is now and a tomorrow which is later. In other words, Esther was prophesying that the hanging of Haman's ten sons would not be a single episode in history, but would be repeated at a future tomorrow as well. Who would these other ten men be? Well, this is where the story leads us to Germany and the Nazis. Uh, Rabbi Eliyah Shlomo ben Salman a prominent Lithuanian rabbi of the 18th century. He was known as the Vila Gaon, Vilna Gaon. And Gaon means uh, genius in Hebrew. So he was the genius of Vilna. And he was under the impression that the German nation had descended from the Amalekites. Let's see. If you read the book of Esther with the English language Bible, you're not going to see what is obvious in the original Hebrew. In the next slide. This is how it looks in a normal scroll. Uh, it's, instead of written right to left, it's in a column. Next scroll, please. This one, and you read right to left. So on the right side is, is listed as the ten uh, sons of Haman. And the left, you'll see, it says the et. It's a vav and an aleph and a tav, the et. The left column contains the word ve'et, and each of the son's names is in the right column. The vav is a connector with the meaning of and, and the et identifies a direct object, in this case, the son. Now, some sages that the word ve'et is used to denote replication. Thus, the conclusion is that another ten people are also to be hung in addition to Haman's ten sons. Now, according to Nachmanides Rambam, a 13th century Jewish scholar, doctor, and biblical commentator, in his commentary on Rashid, or Genesis, says, any change from the usual way of writing a word or letter indicates some hidden meaning in the text. So let's look at how some of the son's names are written in the scroll. You look at the first son's name. His name is Parshantata. The Tav in red is written smaller than the other letters. If you go down to the seventh son's name, which is Parmashta, you'll see the Shen, or it looks like a W, in red, it also is smaller than the other letters. If you go down to the last son's name, Vaisata, you'll see that the Zain is also in red, is also smaller than the others. 
but you'll also notice that the Vav is larger in Vaisatha's name. When indicating years in Hebrew, three letters are usually given. The fourth letter given indicates the millennium. The enlarged Vav in Vaisatha's name is thought to refer to this millennium. As you know, every Hebrew letter is given a numerical value. Tav is 400, Shen is 300, and Zion is 7, and Vav is 6, or the 6th millennium. So, you total up those three, and you come up with a year, the 707, or the 707th year of the 6th millennium, which written in Hebrew style would be the year 5707, and in our Gentile calendars, it would be 1946. Now, what happened in 1946? Following the end of World War II, 22 Nazi leaders were tried for war crimes at Nuremberg. Starting on November the 20th, 1945, and on October the 1st of 1946, 11 Nazis were sentenced to death by hanging. Now, normal protocol is firing squad or lecture chair. The order to hang them kind of fulfilled the prophecy of Queen Esther. On October the 16th of 1946, in the early morning hours, the executions were carried out. Eleven were to be hung, but two hours before his execution, Field Marshal Hermann Goring committed suicide, which left ten. One of the defendants was a man called Julius Strecker, who was hatred of the Jews was legendary. He ran a publishing company. As he was led to the gallows, he shouted, Heil Hitler. As he was standing on the platform with a rope around his neck, he glanced at the witnesses and shouted, Purim Fest, 1946. He understood the story of Haman's attempt to exterminate the Jews, and it was parallel to the Nazis' attempt to also exterminate the Jews. What's fascinating is they were sentenced on the 1st of October, 1946, and that year it was between Yom Teruah and Yom Kippur, and hanged on the 16th of October, 1946, the 16th of October was Hoshana Rabbah, Tishri 21, the last great day, which is considered the day of the sealing of the divine judgment. How awesome is our Elohim. What makes this even more significant is that the trial had ended several months earlier, but the final verdicts had been postponed because the Nazis appealed for amnesty. Thus, all that was written in the scroll of Esther was fulfilled to the letter. The ten condemned men were hanged on a wooden gallows, and the name of the executioner was Master Sergeant Woods. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> in a speech made by Hitler on January the 30th, 1944, the connection between Haman and the Nazi regime was made. Hitler said that if the Nazis were defeated, the Jews could celebrate a second Purim. Hitler ordered all synagogues locked and barred on Purim. He even outlawed the observance of Purim and declared it a capital offense to possess a copy of the book of Esther. All right, let's see. In a speech made on November the 10th of 1938, the day after Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, Nazi Jew hater Julius Strecker said, the Jews butchered 75,000 Persians in one night. The same fate would have befallen the German people had the Jews succeeded in exciting a war against Germany the Jews would have instituted a new Purim festival in Germany. Now, I found a little blurb on Kristallnacht. 
Kristallnacht was a term that they used, and I'll read it to you. Just before midnight on November the 9th, Gestapo, Gestapo was the German secret police. Gestapo chief Heinrich Mueller sent a telegram to all police units informing them that in short order actions against Jews and especially their synagogues will take place in all of Germany. These are not to be interfered with. Rather, the police were to arrest the victims. Fire companies stood by synagogues in flames with explicit instructions to let the buildings burn. They were to intervene only if a fire threatened adjacent Aryan structures. In two days and two nights, more than 1,000 synagogues were burned or otherwise damaged. Rioters ransacked and looted about 7,500 Jewish businesses, killed at least 91 Jewish people, vandalized Jewish hospitals, homes, schools, and cemeteries. The attackers were often neighbors. Some 30,000 Jewish males aged 16 to 60 were arrested. To accommodate so many new prisoners, the concentration camps at Dachau, Buchenwald, and Sachsenhausen were expanded. After the pogrom ended, it was given an oddly poetic name, Kristallnacht, meaning crystal night, or the night of broken glass. The name symbolized the final shattering of Jewish existence in Germany. After Kristallnacht, the Nazi regime made Jewish survival in Germany impossible. <clears throat> During the Nazi reign in Germany, many attacks against the Jews often coincided with Purim. Example, in 1942, ten Jews were hanged in Purim to avenge the hanging of Haman's ten sons. The information encoded within this plain text of Esther is incredible. Only Yehovah in his wisdom could inspire these things to be recorded in the scroll and then have them come to pass more than 2,000 years later. Yet he tells us in his word he can do this. In Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 through 10, Remember the former things of old, for I am Yehovah, and there is no other. I am Yehovah, and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all of my pleasure. The execution date of the 16th of October of 1946, Hoshana Rabbah, is an important date. According to the Mishnah, during the temple period, willow branches were leaned against the altar all around. The priests would walk around the altar while the people recited Hoshana, Save us, please, Psalm 118, 25, and 26. I'd like to say something about Hoshiana. Hoshiana is not just save us, please. Hoshiana is a plea that comes from the depths of your soul, crying out that this is it. You have to save us. It's a desperate plea. And so I'll say Psalm 118, 25, and 26. Ana Yehovah Hoshiana. Ana Yehovah Hatzlechana. Baruch haba b'shem Yehovah. Berunachem mibet Yehovah. Please, Yehovah, save us now. Please, Yehovah, prosper us now. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yehovah. We bless you from the house of Yehovah. And I'd like to end with, And may the Elohim of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov fill you to overflowing with his grace, his mercy, and his blessings. Amen.
Wasn't that awesome? Pastor Mark's getting the the pom-poms, so we'll get those all passed out. So make sure you get yourself a pom-pom. And for those who uh, think everybody probably knows what to do, but you get your pom-pom, and the whole idea is when when I read the name of the heroine, Esther, you do a yay with the shake of the pom-pom. And when I read the name of the wicked Haman... We say, boo, and shake the pom-pom. Alan's like, you're supposed to do it with groggers. But uh, they outlaw groggers here in Loosedale. <laughs> That's an act of high treason on Purim. Yeah, yeah. Come on, come on kids, come, come, come get your pom-poms. Yeah. Help, help pass the mark out. Spread them all out. Yes. Yes. Yes, I heard it was like, yeah. That's, yeah. So, so Sherry wanted to make sure everybody knew that the, 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 the Popo visit for the Purim party wasn't because of groggers or the pom-poms. It was a different issue with a neighbor that was uh, having a fit about leaves, uh, leaves in a ditch. So if you didn't get that word, that's, uh, that was the story behind that. All right. It looks like we're all about there, all about ready. Everybody got your pom-poms? Wave it. Show me. Show me. Got there. There we go. All right, y'all ready? We're going to go through. Now, Richard uh, highlighted a lot of really cool insights into the story and a lot of the ties into history. Now, we need to understand our history, not because it's going to keep us from repeating it, because we are going to repeat it, and we need to know the playbook. Amen? So our story begins... With a faithful party. It says it all began in ancient Persia in the 4th century BC. The holy temple that had stood in Jerusalem was destroyed more than 50 years earlier, and the Jews were subjects of the mighty Persian Empire that extended over 127 lands. Do you see that picture that he brought up? You see how big of a landmass that was? That was definitely a huge empire. So the Media Persian Empire, Media and Persia is the second beast kingdom that followed Babylon, the head of gold, ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar, who had been given the vision of this beast image 
through a dream that was interpreted by Daniel the prophet. Media Persia, in the image, was the chest and arms of silver. They, were, they would be followed by Greece, represented by the abdomen and thighs of bronze, and finally Rome, represented by iron, iron legs with feet of iron mixed with clay. These beast kingdoms will rule over Jerusalem. So that's the idea. Holisha's taught that. The idea we talk about the beast and beast kingdoms. One of the key parts to say, well, what about the ten tribes? They weren't, they weren't taken away by whom? By Syria, right? By Assyria. Well, Assyria is not part of that thing because even though they took ten tribes away, they never ruled over Jerusalem. Three years after King Ahasuerus ascended to the Persian throne, when he felt secure in his new position, he celebrated by throwing a grand 180-day-long party for all of his subjects. Who would like to go to a 180-day-long party? <laughs> yeah, I got to get the yums like, yeah! <laughs> all it was like, oh, my bed is calling me. I got to, I got to go. It's past 10 o'clock. I, sorry, I'm out. So following this extravagant gala, Ahasuerus hosted a smaller week-long party. Hey, what follows better than a 180-long party? Let's, let's have another week-long party. But this was for the residents of the capital city of Susa. In the palace, palace's women's quarters, Ahasuerus' wife, Queen Vashti, hosted her own party for the, Shush, for the Shushanite women folk. And as Richard had mentioned, King Ahasuerus is also known as King Xerxes in the Greek language. His father was King Darius the Great. You remember that from at least your Bible stories in the book of Daniel? Nehemiah would later be the same king's cupbearer. So there's all these ties that I know I didn't have growing up reading the things. They're all so separated, but there's so much of this stuff that's overlaid on each other. On the seventh day of this party, Ahasuerus' heart was, quote-unquote, merry with wine. And he commanded his wife Vashti to appear before all the partying men. He wanted to show them all her exquisite beauty. Now, to look back at this, it really doesn't mean any more than it actually says that actual, the culture that they had was very, very modest. Most of the time, women were very veiled. They, ran, they rolled around in covered wagons kind of thing. So this really was like, you know, I want everybody just to see what a beautiful wife I have. Um, but still, that was very, from a custom standpoint, that, was, that would be kind of stepping down. So... Vashti balked at this request, and at the advice of his advisor, Menuchem, Ahasuerosh ordered Vashti's removal as queen. Interesting, the IBB commentary, when he said he was married with wine, it's Herodotus, Herodotus, who was actually a historian back in this time, he reported that Persians typically made important decisions while drunk. And then validated them once they were sober. I guess that's one way to rule a kingdom, huh? 
Let's, yeah, I kind of, I think, yeah. Nancy, huh? <laughs> Sorry. So next we go, uh, the next part of our story goes into the, the beauty contest. When Ahasuerus' wrath dissipated and sobered up, he was lonely for a wife. His servant suggested that he orchestrate a beauty pageant. Officers would be appointed in all the king's lands, and all the beautiful girls would be brought to Ahasuerus. And the girl who would find favor in the king's eyes would be the new queen. There was at that time in Susa a resident named Mordechai. That wasn't one of the guys. There was two people. (laughs) You guys are overachievers. (laughs) I'm just kidding. He had a cousin, Hadassah. Known as Esther. Who was orphaned as a young girl. Mordecai raised her and treated her as a daughter. Though she had no desire to be queen, Esther was taken to the king's harem with all the other young women to participate in the contest. All the young women went through 12 months of preparation in the harem before being presented to the king. Esther found great favor with the eunuch that was over the harem, and she followed his advice. When Esther appeared before the king... He immediately liked her, and Esther became the new queen of Persia. But as per Mordecai's directive, Esther refused to divulge her nationality, even to her husband, the king. Shortly after Esther became queen, Mordecai overheard two of the king's door guards discussing a plot to assassinate the king. Mordecai reported this plot to Queen Esther, and she reported this to the king in the name of Mordecai, and the traitors were hanged. Meanwhile, Haman, one of Ahasuerus' ministers, was promoted to the position of prime minister, or second in command. Haman was a virulent Jew-hater. In fact, he was a descendant of the notorious nation of Amalek. Boo! It says this, actually, in Exodus 17, 14 through 16. It says, Then yod heh said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it yod heh is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of yod heh yod heh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And this is just proving it out. Amen? Immediately after his promotion, the king issued a decree ordering everyone to bow down whenever Haman appeared. When Mordecai, a proud Jew refused to bow down, Haman was infuriated. He resolved to take revenge against all the Jews and threw lots, or Purim, to determine the quote-unquote lucky day that he would implement his wicked plan. The lot fell on the 13th day of the Hebrew month of Adar. The IBP commentaries are my buddy Herodotus reports that Persians 
of equal rank greeted one another with a kiss on the mouth. <laughs> yeah, boo. <laughs> just, just be thankful you ain't living in Persia right now, okay? I'm saying right now. So someone with slightly lower status would greet a superior with a kiss on the cheeks. A little better, right? We, we can get closer. And if there was a great difference in their status, prostration was, requi- was, the, was the required protocol or bowing down before someone. And they say most likely this is what Mordecai was not willing to acknowledge, the wide difference in status between himself and Haman that, that the act would have implied. So Haman approached Ahasuerus and offered him 10,000 silver shekels in exchange for permission to exterminate Mordecai by destroying his entire people, the Jews. Ahasuerus told Haman, Boo, the money is yours to keep and the nation is yours to do with as you please. Ahasuerus is kind of a He's a neutral guy. He's, he's really not, he, you know, he can be swayed to do things that are kind of wicked, but you can see in the end of the story, he's, you know, really good. So, very interesting. Haman immediately sent proclamations. Boo. These declarations sealed with the royal signet ring ordered the people to rise up against the Jews and to kill them all, men, women, and children, on the following 13th of Adar. Notice that the evil decree against God's people doesn't come directly from the king. It comes from someone of influence within the beast kingdom that is given authority to act on behalf of the king. That might be a pattern we need to have our eyes open for because we're always looking for those kingpins, but the kingpin may not be the dude or the dudette. Next, we get to Mordecai's request. Mordecai became aware of the decree. He rent his garments and donned sackcloth. He sent a message to Esther asking her to approach the king and beg him to spare her people. Esther responded that according to the rules, anyone who entered the king's presence unsummoned will be put to death unless the king extended to that person the golden scepter. And I, Esther, said, have not been summoned to the king for 30 days already. So set the stage. She's fixing to go in and do, you know, approach the king. But here, it's been a month since he's even asked for her presence. So she's got to be wondering what's going on. Did I offend him some way? I mean, there's a lot of this stuff in the background are just our, our human things that we're trying to figure out what's happening and try to discern things that's happening in this story. So Mordecai sent another message. Do not think that you will escape the fate of all Jews by being in the king's palace. For if you will remain silent at this time, relief and salvation will come to the Jews from another source. Or pause there. I believe that is a true statement. And that is something that speaks to every one of us. Because every one of us, the Father has placed something in you 
There's a piece in you that the Father wants to you to step up and to provide a role you're supposed to play, a lane you're supposed to, whatever that may be. But if you don't step up and do what the Father has called you to do, he will accomplish that through another person. But you will lose the blessing. And you and the house of your father will be lost. And who knows if it is not for just such a time as this that you have reached this royal position. Esther agreed to approach the king. But she asked Mordecai to gather all the Jews in Susa and let them all fast for three days and three nights. And after this fast, Esther would put her life in her hands and approach the king. As she said, if I perish, I perish. Three is the number for resurrection. And Esther will knowingly forfeit her life for her people. That's something that stuck out to me doing this study. And it's not only go back to like Isaac, right, being being ready to be sacrificed. The idea of sacrifice or that picture of sacrifice doesn't have to be the physical act. Both with Isaac and with Esther, they had put themselves to the point to where they gave up their life. Matter of fact, the commentary, I believe, says that Isaac was bound He was bound at his request because he didn't want to squirm or flinch when the knife came down. So he had already, even though his, uh, the hand was stayed and the knife didn't stab him, he was still ready to be sacrificed. The same thing with Esther. So this is a type of, a type of sacrifice. Yeah. Yay. Amen. So Mordecai complied. With Esther's request, and he gathered the Jews of Susa, 22,000 of them, and they fasted and repented and prayed to God. After three days fasting, Esther donned her royal attire and entered Ahasuerus' chambers. Immediately, the king extended his scepter. What is it? Ahasuerus asked. What is your request? I would like to invite the king and Haman to a small feast I have prepared, King Esther responded. The Hebrew actually states, for the feast I have prepared for him. So is it him, the king, or is it him, Haman? The king can see that his queen is troubled, and her invitation raises questions. How is she so acquainted with Haman? And why only invite the two of them? He has dealt with coup attempts before. So the king and Haman joined Esther for a wine feast. Naturally. (laughs) Because important decisions had to be made, right? So actually, that is actually the, the, in the text when you read it. It'll just say a feast. But if you look back into the word, it's actually a, it would be what we call a banquet. In other words, it's not a, it ain't a bunch of steak dinners. 
but it's a lot of cocktails and hors d'oeuvres, fancy. It's very much more of a uh, social affair. During the feast, the the king asked Esther whether she had anything to request. He's trying to find out what is going on. Yes, Esther responded. I would appreciate it if tomorrow again the king and Haman will join me for another wine feast. And then I will tell the king my request. This doesn't settle the king's consciousness. He knows something isn't right, and he doesn't have any more answers than before the banquet. So Haman left the party, a happy and proud man. Oh, the honor he was being accorded. But standing at the king's gate was Mordecai, who still refused to bow to Haman. And Haman was enraged. When he arrives home, his wife, his wife and wife's advisors counseled him to erect a gallows and then to go to the king and request permission to hang Mordecai. Haman excitedly went ahead and put up the gallows. And this popped in my head, Proverbs sixteen eighteen: Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. Sleep eluded, the, sleep eluded the king that night. So he asked his servants to read from the royal chronicles. They compiled, they complied with the king's orders. They read from the chronicles how Mordecai yeah. saved the king's life when the two, two of his door guards hatched a plot to kill him. Was he rewarded for this fine act? Ahasuerus asked. No, he was not, the servants responded. At that moment, right? Like, coincidence is not a kosher term, by the way. At that moment, Haman entered the king's courtyard. His purpose? To ask the king's permission to hang Mordecai. But before Haman... Could utter a word, Ahasuerus addressed him. My Haman, in your estimation, what shall be done to a person whom the king wishes to honor? Haman, who was certain that the king wished to honor him, responded, Bring a royal garment and a royal horse, and let one of the king's nobles dress the man and lead him on the horse through the cities, the city streets, proclaiming before him, So it is done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. Now, the king can't sleep because of how Esther's acting and how she has refrained from telling him what's going on. The question, he questions what Haman has to do with this matter and his queen. Then Haman in an outburst of pride, seems to allude that he would like to be dressed in the king's royal robes, ride on the king's horse, wear the king's crown. He wants the throne. Great idea, Ahasuerus responded. Now go get the garments and the horse and do so for Mordecai the Jew. Haman had no choice but to comply. On the next day, He went and honored Mordecai just as the king had ordered. 
and then immediately rushed to join the king and Esther for the second feast. What is your request, a curious king, Ahasuerus asked Esther at the feast? If I have found favor in your eyes, O king, Esther pleaded. And if it pleases my king, let my life be granted me by my plea and the life of my people by my request. For my people and I have been sold to be annihilated, killed, and destroyed. Esther identified Haman as the evil person who wished to perpetrate this atrocity. The king arose in his wrath and went into the garden. While he was away, Haman threw himself on the couch with Esther, begging for his life. When the king stepped back in and saw Haman all over his queen, this really set him off. He's thinking, would he accost my queen in my presence? The king was greatly angered. When he was, in, when he was then informed that Haman had built gallows for Mordecai, he ordered that Haman be hanged on those very gallows. On that day, Haman's estate was given to Esther, and Mordecai was appointed prime minister in Haman's stead. And was given the king's signet ring. But Esther was far from relieved. Haman was dead, but his evil decree was still in effect. According to Persian law, once the king issued a decree, it cannot be rescinded. Esther once again approached the king unsummoned. And the king again extended the golden scepter to her. The king gave Mordecai and Esther permission, and they promptly wrote up a decree to countermanded, that countermanded Haman's wicked edict. The decree granted the Jews permission to defend themselves and instead destroy their enemies. And by this time, considering that all knew that the queen and prime minister were both Jewish, many peoples from the country declared themselves as Jews. For the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And the Jews in Susa were oh so happy. Celebrations abounded. On the 13th of Adar that year, the Jews throughout the Persian Empire mobilized and killed the enemies who wanted to kill them. In Susa, among the dead, were the wicked, wicked Haman's ten sons. Esther... Asked the king's permission for the Jews in Susa to have one more day to destroy their enemy. And the king acceded to her wish. On that day, the 14th of Adar, the Jews worldwide celebrated and the Jews of Susa killed more of their enemies and also hung Haman's ten sons. The Jews of Susa then rested and celebrated on the 15th of Adar. Wicked Haman's decree was like the bitter waters of the woman accused to the people of Persia. This is the idea when you had a jealous husband that he had his wife 
drink a special concoction at the temple. And the whole idea is there was guilt. There was a swelling that happened. There was a physical manifestation that proved guilt. The same thing happened at the sin of the golden calf. Moses ground the calf, put it in the water, and had everybody drink. That somehow made them stand out that who was guilty and who was not. So in a way, this was the same thing. Haman decree made those who thought they could destroy God's people and have their stuff without retaliation or resistance, those with evil intent made themselves known and were unknowingly marked themselves for destruction. Because you may have had somebody that was a secret hater that you wouldn't have known anything about. It wasn't until Wicked Haman's decree that you knew who they were. So when it came time for them to destroy their enemies, they knew who the enemy was. Amen. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Esther 9.1 Though the name of God is not mentioned in the whole book of Esther, he was working subtly behind the scenes and reversed the curse. The pattern of Esther is one for us to pay close attention to as I think we're going to see it again. Mordecai and Esther established a holiday to commemorate these amazing events. Jews worldwide celebrate on the 14th of Adar, while the residents of walled cities like Susa celebrate on the 15th of Adar. This holiday called Purim is this most joyous holiday on the Jewish calendar. And it's also a story of hope. Because even though it's okay to read these stories, to live through these stories ain't so fun. So we have times coming upon us. We're going to have to have this same hope. Realize that no matter how bleak the situation looks, no matter how wicked the laws seem to come against us or the people of faith, realize the Father is working in the background and he will reverse the curse.